You're listening to the Unsiloed Podcast with Greg LeBlanc, brought to you by alumni.fm. Unsiloed is a series of interdisciplinary conversations that inspire new ways of thinking about our world. So wherever you are today, enjoy today's episode, and here's your host, Greg LeBlanc. Welcome to Unsiloed. This is Greg LeBlanc, and I'm here with David Papineau, who is a professor of philosophy at King's College London, also the author of a number of books. Most recent book is The Metaphysics of Sensory Experience. He's written a couple of books on unconsciousness, one called Thinking About Consciousness, one called Introducing Consciousness. Then you've got this graphic guide on consciousness. It's the only picture book I know that is about consciousness. It's a philosophy theories and, and great thinkers where you're the editor. Then this one, which is also, I think, has to be used as a textbook in, in a number of classes called Philosophical Devices. And then this more popular book called Knowing the Score, what sports can teach us about philosophy and what philosophy can teach us about sports. Welcome, David. Thank you very much for having me on. I'm glad to be here. Well, I think we're going to start by talking about sports because you know, philosophy is oftentimes seen as a very esoteric discipline, one that is, at least in today's world, restricted to the academy. And I think, you know, the point of knowing the scorebook is to show that, well, you know, you can apply philosophy to pretty much anything, <laughs> right? Including things like sports, which to some people, it's kind of a non-serious activity, right? And I think, I think you're trying to make it clear that you think that this is as serious as any other <laughs> <laughs> a human activity, but it also gives you an opportunity to explore exactly what are the boundaries of philosophy. And for me, it was interesting is that you talk about game theory and there's economics in there. I mean, the, the boundary between philosophy and these other disciplines is not very clear at all. And, and in fact, I found that with the philosophical devices, the topics in here, you said that this is really the topics that are central to the concerns of philosophers at this point. And I'm reading it and I'm like, wait, this is the kind of stuff that I teach in my introductory data and decisions class. And some of the stuff is the stuff I teach in my, you know, introductory critical thinking class. Um, and, and so, you know, is, do people sort of ordinary thinking people, do we need to rethink philosophy and kind of domesticate it? realize that what we're doing is we are philosophizing, right? Remember in Moliere, it's like, oh, I'm speaking prose. Are we doing philosophy all the time? Yes. If you follow the argument where it takes you, you're likely to be doing philosophy. I mean, I have a view about what philosophy is. Maybe not all my colleagues would share it, but quite a lot do. Well, I don't think of philosophy as having a, a special subject matter. I think of philosophy as a set of techniques, a, a way of proceeding that you need to adopt when you meet a certain kind of problem. And you can meet the problem in any any area of thought or life. I mean, the problem is when you discover that your thinking is leading you into paradox. You've got assumptions that contradict each other. And uh, you know some of them must be wrong because reality doesn't contradict itself. So you've got to figure out where the mistake's coming from. And often it will be due to ideas you didn't even know you had, implicit assumptions, philosophical problems can arise anywhere. Hey, look, so you're thinking about the mind and, you know, do you have a soul? I mean, I suppose that looks like a philosophical topic, but then, you know, you think, well, I, I just think about my own consciousness. It's obvious that I'm not just a physical machine. 
but all my bodily movements are due to what's going on in my brain. And uh, so if the consciousness is different from the brain, it doesn't have any influence on what I do. And then suddenly you got yourself into a philosophical problem and it's not quite clear what the right thing to think is. I mean, this can arise in all areas of science. Now, my current project is about the nature of causation and how we find out about it. And if you think about what statisticians and econometricians do, they, they look at correlations, the way things tend to vary probabilistically with each other. And then they draw some conclusion about this causes that. But we think of causation as a deterministic thing, that one thing forces another to happen. So how come the same thing is both probabilistic and deterministic, and now you've got a philosophical problem? But not everybody wants to follow the issue through. I can imagine a lot of economists who say, you know, yeah, yeah, but look, we can see that these techniques looking at probability is a pretty good way of doing it. Let's not worry too much about why. Let's just get ahead and calculate. So not everybody is burdened with the need to carry on following the argument through. But not quite a lot of people have that inclination. They end up doing philosophy classes and enjoying them. Some of them go on to be philosophers. Well, certainly there, there are some, I guess, practical people who dismiss philosophy as nothing more than a game. And, and they may also dismiss a sport as nothing more than a game. And I think you have played a lot of sport in your life. You know, you've played cricket and other sports, tennis and so forth. And, you know, when I was reading about your experience as an athlete, as a participant in amateur sports, it made me think for most people, a team of philosophers out there on the cricket pitch. I mean, this sounds like a Monty Python skit, right? I mean, philosophers aren't typically known for their sporting ways. You know, how do you respond to somebody who says that sport is kind of superfluous? I just reject the idea that sport is just recreation or amusement. I think that wanting to develop physical skills and hone them and admire people who have high levels of physical skill that's just perfectly natural to human beings. I mean, I guess there, there are people who aren't interested in that kind of thing, but there are people who aren't interested in philosophy, there are people who aren't interested in music. Not everybody has to be interested in everything, but I don't think one needs any special excuse to explain why sport is valuable. I mean, it's just the, the development and celebration, admiration of others doing it, of extreme physical skill, and it's a wonderful thing. It's something to admire. I just don't think that sport is, is unimportant. I mean, you know, somebody devotes their life to baseball seems to me no less serious than somebody devotes their life to mathematics or the ballet. It's perfectly serious business. I mean, th there is something odd about sport that makes it different from other things. It's kind of doesn't connect up with other things in the same way as other aspects of our life. Our personal relationships, our jobs and our careers, our Where's the money coming from? That They all tie together. And then kind of sport is up to a point off to the side. But maybe that's one of its extra virtues. It means it's a way of taking time out, relaxing, not having to think about the things that are eating away at you. I think that's a large part of sport for many people. But it's not just a distraction. I mean, it's something that's valuable in itself. One way in this comes out is the number of sports that just develop out of things that people are doing anyway. My favorite example is rowing. The oldest sporting event in the world is Dogger's Coat and Badge from the 17th century in London in the Thames. There are a lot of watermen, a lot of young men made their living 
rowing people and goods back and forth. And uh, of course, they started to take pride in how good they were at rowing. And of course, they started to wanted to test themselves against each other. And so there's something that starts off as a practical kind of activity, quickly becomes an end in itself. It's absolutely natural to humans to want to see how good they can be at something. Well, I think you, you quote a philosopher in the book who said that, you know, at the end of the day, after all of our material needs will be more or less satisfied automatically, right? The only thing left will be games, right? And that, that games with arbitrary rules, that'll be ultimately the most meaningful thing that we have because there will be nothing else. But you distinguish between kind of games and sport, right? That there are sports that don't have these arbitrary rules that don't involve competition even. And then there are games that don't count as sport. You know, we have here a sports channel in the US, ESPN, and it's expanded away from just, you know, football and baseball. Now we have like, well, cheerleading, which of course is a physical activity, but you mentioned like championship barbecue and, you know, as somebody who likes to cook, I'm like, yeah, that, that sounds like a sport, you know, that sounds meaningful to me, but what about, you know, bridge and chess? I mean, are those sports? Do they have barbecuing on ESPN? I don't I don't know what's it, but you know, we've got these like chef competitions, right? Where you know you have a half hour to crank out some kind of recipe and the question is where does the line drawn between chess doesn't come into it, bridge doesn't come into it. They are not sports because sports involve physical excellence and so they don't get in. But darts and pool, uh, I'll count them as sports have physical excellence. And then one kind of problem case is what about, I mean, in Britain, we have the great British Bake Off gets viewing figures of fifth of the population, the final. I mean, and uh, now we have a pottery and uh, uh, sewing and you have barbecuing. And those I won't count as sports, not because they don't involve physical skill, because they do. But the physical skill is not the main part of it. I mean, you're judged on the product. How good is the cake? Nobody's looking to see how deftly you're putting on the icing and giving you marks for that. So if you had a bricklaying competition, I mean, I think they do have bricklaying competitions. I think they do have that. They do have uh, dry wall building competitions in Wales, right? Exactly. But I'd say, well, look, if the judges come along and examine the wall carefully to make sure it's all kind of nicely pointed and so on, then I say it wouldn't be a sporting competition. You're being judged on the product. If there's kind of rough rules about how good the wall have to be, and then it's just how fast you can do it within those rules, and nobody comes and examines how good the wall is at the end, then they're evaluating your physical skill. But let me say something else about the book and philosophy and sport. How I got into it was not a matter of coming along and saying, look, here we can apply some philosophical techniques and say some interesting things about sport. It was just the opposite way round. I was worried about a philosophical problem, and I started looking to sport as a kind of special case that gave us data about the philosophical issue that you couldn't get elsewhere. I mean, the issue was how far our actions are under conscious control. So maybe when I'm sitting in the crossword, I'm it's under conscious control, but when I drive to work along a familiar route, it's not under conscious control. And then I started worrying about how these two 
things interacted. I mean, if you're doing something out of habit, is it completely independent of your conscious control? Then I started thinking about athletes where they often just isn't any time for consciousness to intrude. If you're a baseball batter, I mean, you've got less than half a second. The truth is there isn't even enough time for the information to get into your eye, through your visual cortex, and down to your motor cortex. Something else is going on. I mean, it's, it's the, probably the guiding of the hands is subcortical. You're probably reading an awful lot of information out of the pitcher's hand and angle before they let the ball go. But whatever, I mean, the, there's no conscious control involved. It's, it's, it's a reflex. But at the same time, the batter can, can set themselves. It depends what the count is, what kind of strategy they're going to use. I mean, are they going to swing if it's on the edge or not? And they decide that beforehand, and then this automatic reflex is controlled by the earlier decision, and you don't get that kind of focusing of the issue, that something which can only be a reflex is somehow being controlled by an earlier conscious decision. Uh, You don't get that issue kind of posed so clearly outside the sporting context with fast reaction sports. Fast reaction sports are very, very interesting about how the human mind works and how it controls actions. I mean, that seems metaphorical for life in general, right? So, you know, in judgment decision-making, we talk about, you know, system one, system two, but, and most of our actions are done more or less automatically. They're not done with a lot of reflection, but the reflection that happens prior to that can shape the response function, right? So it's not the same as reflex, right? Reflex is something that, you know, you can't more or less train but you can't retrain your reflexes you can't train yourself not to blink if somebody sticks a stick at your arm but conditioned response i mean something that uh, there's a stimulus you do it uh look many of my philosophical colleagues would say that if you're acting intentionally you know your eyes are open you're awake then your consciousness is playing a controlling role all the time And that was the idea I wanted to resist by saying in these fast sporting contexts, there just isn't any time. I mean, Roger Federer sets himself to hit to Nadal's backhand when the opportunity arises. But the opportunity arises, I mean, the ball's coming at him at 140 miles an hour. So how is his intention controlling the response? So... Yeah, I mean, I agree with you about a lot of it is system one and system two control it, but how does it control it? And it doesn't control it by real-time monitoring, because in the sporting context, there isn't any time for the real-time monitoring. That that was the thing that interested me. Yeah, there's a great example, which I mentioned just to people in passing the last couple of days. You cite this example where they took these female softball pitchers and had them pitch to the world-class top flight baseball hitters and they, and they, they whiffed completely. And so, you know, presumably like a fairly decent high school softball player could, you know, out hit the world's best baseball hitters. And it's not because the ball's traveling faster because it's not, it's not about watching the ball at all. It's about the preparation and, and what they pick up on with respect to the windup, right. Of the ball. And this is so unfamiliar to them. I, I love that example. Yeah. Yeah. So there's a story, which I'll tell you now, which, in fact, didn't get into the book. I don't quite know why. But I have a friend, another philosopher of my generation, Graham MacDonald. When he was young, he was a world-class squash player, top top half dozen. I mean, he was in rank number five or something. But he described a case where he played when he was a youngster. 
he played the number one player and beat him. And the number one player said, well, right, okay, you beat me this time, but now I've played you and we'll see how it goes next time. Next time, the senior player won. And it was just he'd learned how to anticipate where the ball was going from Graham's movements. First time around, he didn't know. So it's all to do with the set of your wrist and your anger, your shoulder and, and, and so on. And uh, people learn where the ball's going. I mean, they're experiments where they turn off your vision before the ball is let go. And in quality sports, the athletes still do pretty well at, I mean, maybe not hitting a baseball, but knowing roughly where it's going to be. Right. And so you challenge this kind of y yoga theory of sport, right? Now, there's a whole literature on you know the yips and, and on choking, which says that, you know, if you're thinking too much, you're not going to perform. And so they draw the inference that high level skill is a function of not thinking, right? What are they missing? Well, what's right about it and what's wrong about it? What's right about it is, is you shouldn't try and control your movements in a active game. Uh, I mean, that's something you can do when you're practicing. But if you start thinking, oh, I'm, my backlift is too short or uh, I've got to speed up my putter head, it will all go completely, completely wrong. You mustn't think about your movements. You must leave that to your training. But where I think the yoga people uh, go with the flow, just do it, go completely wrong, is in drawing the inference that you should just empty your mind. And the truth is, I think you really have to focus on your game plan, on what you're trying to achieve. Like I said, then Federer might, might have set himself to hit to Nadal's backhand, and he needs to keep that in mind and kind of set his program. This is the program I'm pursuing. And I mean, I, I like to think of it in terms of programs. I, I think these top athletes have a bunch of different programs, routines that they have have learned. And then in the context, maybe even between points, but at the beginning of the match, uh, they kind of decide which program they're going to carry out. This is the right strategy. And then they have to hold that in mind, because if they don't hold it in mind, the body will forget what's supposed to be controlling it. And it's all too easy for your mind to lose control of your body in that way and, and start daydreaming. And then you're, you're not focused. I mean, and of course, this is obvious. I mean, despite the fact that, that, that there are these kind of uh, people who say what you need to do is empty your mind and just allow flow to go, all athletes know you've got you've to focus, you've got to concentrate. <laughs> yeah. I mean, it seems like that applies in domains outside of sport as well, right? I mean, it seems if you're trying to undertake any kind of complex activity, the performance is a function of the extent to which you can, you know, partition the thought process between, you know, the automatic and the non-automatic and even like within an organization, right? Understanding what needs to be kind of a, a rinse, wash, repeat routine and what needs to be continuously intentionalized. I mean, that, that seems you could extend that well beyond sport, right? Yeah. But I think in sport, when you're really competing, there's not really much that can be led to unmonitored routine. I mean, there's a difference between, I mean, even somebody who's, I don't know, doing the vaulting horse in gymnastics or the 100-meter sprint, there's a level of focus and intensity in competition that you can't reproduce every time in practice. And if you don't have in mind, now we're competing, 
what's to tell your body that you're not in practice mode? I mean, you've got to, you've got to gear things up and keep them there. I mean, there's a nice story about Pete Sampras. I think the time he was going to break the record for winning Wimbledon, and then they said to him, what, what were you thinking about when you were approaching the victory? And he said, I wasn't thinking about anything. My mind was empty. But I don't think that means that he's just relaxed and going with the flow. I mean, it's not like he's daydreaming. It's like he's thinking about absolutely nothing except hit the ball there, hit it there, hit it there. That's all he's thinking about. Right. Well, you know, you talk about people who develop the yips and wind up having to leave the profession, but you also talk about how one type of gamesmanship might involve trash talking and, you know, disrupting somebody's ability to think clearly. And this bled into discussion about the kind of the, the ethics of it. And when you're talking about the trash talking, it reminded me of that famous scene, you know, where Jadon headbutted the Italian player, I forget his name, during the, I guess it was 2006 World Cup. Sad incident. Of course it was sad, but then, but of course he defended himself and said, oh, you know, he said something about my mother or my sister or my wife or whatever. So the question is, okay, well, does that make it okay, right? I mean, is there a, a rule of conduct around this trash talking where you should not go? So I, I say quite a lot in the book about different codes of fair play in different sports. And so I don't think, by and large, that there's an absolute standard about these things. I mean, there's some sports where, at maybe more so in the past, where it wasn't acceptable to say anything to kind of distract your opponent. And then there's sports where it's acceptable. I mean, you, you know, everybody knows you might get inside somebody's head a bit, but that's part of the game. But you're allowed to make jokes and make certain kinds of comments, but you aren't supposed to be talking, you know, making comments, disreputable comments about their wives or mothers. And the way I think about it is that these conventions, which vary from sport to sport, are like a kind of contract, a deal. This is how we're going to do it. And somebody who then breaks the contract, they're behaving immorally. But within the contract, in many sports, certain kinds of uh, trash-talking uh, jokes, that's acceptable. And you can, you know, can do it more or less cleverly. But I also say in the book that while there's plenty of room for different conventions, different arrangements about what's going to be acceptable, there's also some arrangements that aren't acceptable by anybody's standards. And it's subjectively immoral. And I suspect that certain kinds of comments about people's wives and mothers should be kind of considered off limits in any kind of context. Well, I mean, you, you talked about how if you fail to take advantage of these things, then, you know, you may be letting your team down, right? And, you know, I had a previous podcast interview where I talked to a management professor who was dismissive of the people who say that you know, flopping is in some way a violation of good sportsmanship. And he argued that, look, if it's permitted, then, you know, you got to do it, right? <laughs> Otherwise, you're, you're not serious about winning. And so you had some interesting comments about the extent to which you should, you know, push the rules and do whatever you can get away with. So there's obviously incentives for the 
players to engage in a race to the bottom, and it becomes, by my counting, the conventions have become immoral. Should we, I mean, what's to be done about it? I mean, do we look to the players themselves to stop doing it? I mean, the truth is you want the authorities to put some measures in place to make it costly for the players to do it. And so should we blame the players if they're behaving immorally when nobody's stopping them? Uh, Difficult, no, but letting the side down. But still, I mean, uh, I'm sure even your laissez-faire professor would agree that in some contexts there should be penalties for bad enough behaviour. I mean, the Saints' bounty gate, I mean, it turned out that they were paying players to injure the opposition, okay? And notice when that came out, nobody said, oh, it's all right because everybody else is doing it, which was probably partly true. We'd be letting the side down if we didn't. Everybody could see, no, that's just not acceptable. Even if everybody's doing it, it needs to be stamped out. So, uh, I mean, I do think, you know, even in sports and even given the flexibility of the conventions, there are some things that are too far. Yeah, why is it in some sports it's it's seen as, you know, clever if you can hoodwink the umpires and the referees? And, and in other sports, it's seen as distasteful. So that's just a... Conventions, that's just the agreements of the sport. I mean, sports vary so much in their agreements. I mean, soccer has all kinds of looseness and bad behavior. But one thing you absolutely are not allowed to do is hit somebody else. But in hockey, right, in your ice hockey, that's kind of part of the game. Everybody loves it. You know, the two players go at each other and uh, that's supposed to happen, except up to limits. They aren't allowed to use their sticks, are they? I mean, I think it's like, you know, in, in the West, you shake hands when you meet somebody in Japan, you bow. I mean, there are different understandings of what constitutes respectful behavior. After the most recent Super Bowl, the determining play at the end of the game, there was a player on the Philadelphia Eagles who was uh, called for holding. And uh, after the game, they asked him what he thought. And he said, well, you know, I was holding. <laughs> I just thought it wouldn't get called. And I remember people were equally divided where half people were saying, oh, this is, you know, refreshing honesty. And then there were other people who were saying, you know, why would you ever admit to that? Particularly people who are fans of the team. They said, hey, don't say that. But that's one thing, don't say it. But that's just how you're supposed to behave in front of the media. But you didn't report any people as saying he shouldn't be doing it, that it's not part of the game to try and hold and hope the umpires don't blow you up on it. I mean, of course it's part of the game. Yeah, no, I mean, it's perfectly obvious that in many sports, it's part of the game that you're supposed to do something which uh, might be against the rules and hope the umpires aren't going to notice. I mean, the case I love is framing the pitch in baseball. And, I mean, this is considered very high-level elite skill that the best and most honest baseball players practice, which is a fool umpire into thinking it's a strike when it wasn't. It's kind of weird. I mean, that you're really trying to do something that disguises from the umpire that your pitcher has sent a bad pitch down. That's just the con- baseball, baseball convention. I mean, I mean, nobody goes around saying, no, Buster Posey, you should have said it. You should have told the umpire it wasn't a strike. You knew it wasn't a strike. I mean, it's not part of the game. Well, I think in the, you know, it's the first week of law school. You take a torts class and you learn the difference between sort of an intentional tort, right? Where if you kick somebody under their desk in school and they have uh, like an eggshell leg and the, the leg collapses, well, you know, you're going to be liable for the, the damages. But the minute you step out into the field for recess, 
then, you know, if you kick somebody and something bad happens, well, it's there, it's okay, right? Because everybody understands that when during recess out in the field, different rules apply. And it seems like the, the same could be said about, you know, conversations. I mean, there are conventions around conversations and debates as well, right? Where people can get sort of distressed or hurt as a result of the conversation that's acceptable or unacceptable, depending on the conventions, right? Yeah. So, I mean, there's also the variation from culture to culture, but yeah, formal occasions, less formal occasions uh, with your friends, with your family, uh, things that are acceptable in one context and not acceptable in another context. And it's, it's a matter of what, I mean, largely a matter of what the expectations are. You could imagine the expectations being different and things would work fine. But given what the expectations are, you don't want to offend or upset people by violating them. We need some set of expectations so people know how to conduct themselves, but alternative sets would work just as well. I mean, this is a general point about conventions and morality. I mean, we, we need some set of rules in order to have all kinds of things that we benefit from and enjoy, but exactly which set of rules we have doesn't matter too much up to a point. Right. And do you think that people fail to make that distinction in ordinary life? I mean, there are quite a few rules that we have devised in society that exist mainly to facilitate coordination and because we think that they will improve the quality of life or so. But I think that for many people, they have to imbue it with some kind of you know, moral authority in order for them to really accept the rule. Well, it's complicated. It is a moral matter to me. If once you have the rules in place, that you should respect the rules, because if you don't, then you're disrespecting the people involved. So that's true. What's done is to think that people who have different sets of rules from you are per se immoral. That's like thinking Japanese aren't polite because they don't shake hands. But, I mean, you get this in sport a lot. I mean, the soccer case is difficult because I think some of the soccer behavior really is just beyond the pale. But you can imagine tennis fans looking down on hockey because, look, they start brawling all the time, aren't they vulgar ruffians? But I think that's silly. It's just that they've got a different set of conventions. So people often do mistake what's different conventions for being immoral. I think that's just a mistake. Well, I mean, there are people that brag about how they were able to you know, cheat on their taxes, let's say, and they think they're clever, right? And there are others that will look at that and say, well, that's a clear violation of the, of the social contract, right? Yeah, yeah. So I agree. I mean, and uh, well, it's an interesting question and it will vary from place to place what's part of the social contract, what's expected of people. And uh, yes, that's raising much more deep and difficult issues. So there's plenty of countries in which everybody expects you not to pay your taxes if you can. And I don't think in those countries it's really immoral not to pay your taxes. You do what everybody else does. You probably a fine person upholding all kinds of standards in other areas of life. It's just that in this country, that's not what's part of morally expected behavior. I mean, having said that, I think it's sad for those countries. I think those countries 
get on less well than countries that have a different standard, different expectations of what's required of civil society. But now we're raising you know, much bigger and more difficult issues. The, the kind of level, of level of expectation and trust we have in some advanced societies is a valuable thing. Not everybody, not all societies have it. And it, it's a difficult thing to build up. A very difficult thing to build up, and uh, I fear probably rather too easy to lose. Well, well, you had some interesting points about fandom, right? You know, I mean, it's when people support their team, they feel that they, if they didn't support their team, that they would be violating some kind of duty, right? But it seems, you know, rather arbitrary, right? You know, why you would support one team versus another. But the fact, even if you acknowledge that it's arbitrary, that doesn't in any way dilute the fervor with which one supports one's team. I mean, how, how do we reconcile? I mean, is this just similar to, you know, the duty that you have to your immediate family, which is necessarily going to be in conflict with universal moral norms? I mean, if you're a Kantian, right? I mean, you'd have to be like, I don't care which team wins. And maybe you just say, well, that team played better and so they won and therefore I support them, right? I mean, that would kind of destroy the, a, a lot of the fun of it, right? I mean, is this necessarily in, in conflict with some fundamental uh, moral principles? I'm always amazed when people pray to God to have their team win. And it's like, well, the other side's doing that. So right? like everyone's praying to God for their team to win, right? God doesn't have a dog in this fight, right? Yeah. I mean, th there's some philosophers who are objectivist about values. What's valuable for one person should be valuable for everybody if you should behave differently towards your children than other children. It's not a matter of uh, your children being more valuable for you. It's a matter of you're having a duty towards your children. You don't have towards other children. But I think that that's too austere, and, and the fact of sports fandom gives the lie to it. I mean, from many people's perspective, it's valuable that their team wins. Nobody should say they've got a duty to support their team. It's a matter of duty. It's just a matter of what colors the world in good technicolor success for them. Uh, their team wins. And I just think we have to recognize that what's valuable is different for different people. So it's a sore point to my son is an Arsenal fan, and I'm a Tottenham fan, and we have season tickets. How did that happen? I tried to bring him up not to be an Arsenal fan. I'm from North London, but uh, uh, when I was young, Arsenal were a very boring, boring team, and uh, I turned against them. I, mean, I never was uh, uh, I'm a Tottenham fan, but when he was a youngster, I tried to bring him up like that. But one day he came home from school when he was about eight or nine. He said, Dad, I'm sorry, I'm sorry, but... Well, you know, the whole school were Arsenal fans, and he and he didn't want to leave uh, one of them. So, and now he's a big Arsenal fan. Last night was the last sixteen of the UEFA Cup, and I went to Arsenal with him. And uh, Arsenal lost in penalties; they got kicked out of the the competition. And uh, he went home very sad. And it's kind of, it's not as bad as when Arsenal are playing Tottenham. When we go together, we know one of us is going to be sad. But I can't quite share his pain. But I'm empathetic. Is it completely arbitrary? Or do you think that there are rules around what constitutes an acceptable loyalty? I mean, when I was growing up as a kid in Philadelphia, if someone came to school with a 
Cowboys jersey on. I mean, they would experience an enormous amount of abuse, right? And it was seen as unnatural, as seen as traitorous in some way. But but then when when Philadelphia fans moved to other parts of the country, they raised their children as Philadelphia fans, thereby, you know, well, if in most of the country that does not result in a substantial amount of abuse because most places are not as rabid and fervent as they are, say, in Philadelphia. But if you're, say, that child, you have a conflict between your parental loyalties and and maybe your your peer loyalties. I mean, I, I'm always suspicious of people who root for a team simply because it's good. That seems to me to be some fundamental betrayal of of some other principle like loyalty or filial duty. Who knows? Uh, it's a matter of accent. I mean, but you know, often it's just you know, like my son, where you are, what all the people around you are, but also what your parents are. I was thinking just myself i don't know how normal this is i find that there'll be some athletes that i kind of notice when they're starting and they're exciting and then i'm gonna be a fan for the rest of their sporting lives i don't know is that general do you have the same thing rory McElroy, McElroy, you know he he nearly won the masters when he was 19 he was a real phenom and then yeah he's kept going and i always want him to win and uh i think emma redekano is going to be the same and and otani i mean it's partly when you if you kind of pick them up before other people and they become your person and i you know i just want them Every time they do well, I, you know, I turn to the sports pages to see what their results were. I don't know. I guess that's natural. Well, it's, it's interesting when a player leaves your team and joins another team, right? And then that team competes against, against your team. And you point out the difference between sort of a loyalty to a team versus loyalty to the, the individual members of the team. But isn't a team just a, you know, as Margaret Thatcher said, there's, there are no teams. There's just individuals right how is it that we can be fans of a team over a long period of time where the the team membership is just completely replaced and churned and you know it becomes particularly puzzling when that churn gets faster and faster and faster and we now have a, a world where the players might only stay on the team for a year or two yeah and it's funny some players who leave when they come back they're like long last sons that the fans love i mean sol campbell went from arsenal to tottenham and it was like that's traitorship he's not welcome back when he comes back but other cases you know long-standing loyal players who go somewhere else at the end of their career then when they come back the fans love them yeah I mean, you become attached to, to teams and to players but uh, yeah obviously for many people loyalty primary loyalties to a team not to players and uh it's still there, even if the players have all turned over. Well, you know, you reference also this thing called the Tippett test, and this was primarily around people who, you know, move maybe from one country to the next. And here in the U.S., right, when the U.S. national team plays against the, the Mexican national team, we will often have more fans of the Mexican team in, in attendance. And at least in America, nobody thinks that they're unpatriotic. But this has been a problem, I think, in the U.K., right, in cricket. Look, this is not an issue in America because you scarcely have any. Because no one takes soccer seriously. It's not that. You're picking on soccer because the states don't play international sport. They don't play. I mean, there's a bit of basketball, a bit of hockey, but the top players often just skip that. And so for Americans playing sport against other 
countries is not a big thing. I mean, it doesn't really happen in America. I mean, I, I talk about that quite a lot in the book. And I don't think Americans are comfortable with international sports. They're not comfortable with the idea that, you know, they're in some competition with other countries that they might not win. Well, we're comfortable when we dominate, right? So when the dream team went to Barcelona in 1992, everybody was like, oh, this is great. You know, it's like going to war against Grenada. It's a natural state of things, right? Yeah, in the rest of the world where we do have international competition and we do, like the states, have a multicultural society, it's an interesting issue. And I regard it as rather narrow-minded to insist that everybody who's a loyal citizen of Britain or England, that there's already a problem, Britain or England, which are two different entities with different sporting loyalties, uh, to regard, require everybody who's a British citizen to support the British team against, say, the Indian team. I mean, uh, of course, a lot of British citizens of Indian ancestry are, are yeah, they're heroes of the Indian cricketers, and why not? My view is, is, is that uh, things work best if citizens uh, respect certain features of their home society, but it doesn't require excluding other other attachments and loyalties there's no reason why they shouldn't be overlapping commitments to different countries so i teach a course on game theory and when we teach game theory right i mean it's all built on this idea of individual rationality and so oftentimes we get some puzzling empirical results when we when we have people you know play these games where oftentimes they'll gravitate towards coordination very, very quickly, even though it's it's only one of many equilibria. And you say, well, that's because they're they're kind of switching on their, hey, we're, we're maximizing for team. Now, managers are always wishing, right? They wish that their employees would kind of automatically jump into this. So do you think that this idea of, of you know, thinking of yourself as part of a team, is this a switch that you can turn on or off? What are the conditions that are most likely to lead people to think team first? I don't think it's very hard to turn that switch on. I'm curious about how, how this works in uh, management business thinking. But look, one thing I'd want to argue against the real hardline individualist economists who say everybody just is doing the calculations for themselves, maximizing their own utility, is look. It's pretty obvious that that's not how people think. In an awful lot of context, there's a bunch of people and they've got some problem and it's clear they address it as what should we do and what's the best joint set of actions we can perform. And it might pan out that, that you as one of this team is going to have to perform some actions which aren't really the ones that you would have chosen for yourself, but you're committed to doing what's best for the team. Suppose it's just an amateur sports team, so we don't have any managers or money involved, and, uh, right, you all sit down with how are we going to beat this other side, right? So you, you, Jim, had better just man-mark their player, their star player out the game. It's going to be a very boring game for you, and uh, everybody can see this is the right solution, and so you do it. I mean, uh, family's deciding where to go on holiday, uh, you know, and, uh, they aren't thinking, you know, what's best for me, given what the others might choose. They just think, what's the best thing for, for all of us? And I don't see any reason to query whether this is, I mean, this is clearly as natural for human beings. And if you want to think about the evolution of our psychologies, it's just as likely to evolve 
as thinking of individuals. I mean, think of small hunter-gatherer groups going out to catch a bison or something. I mean, they got to think what's what's the best way for us to catch a bison. So it's very natural for humans. Now, now of course, you don't think like that in all contexts. I mean, if you and somebody else are sitting in the room waiting for an interview for a job, you're competing, and it would be right and natural for you to, to think competitively. So there's some contexts in which you think competitively as an individual, other contexts in which you think as a team, but it's very natural to think as a team, and there's nothing psychologically odd about it. There's nothing from the point of view of rationality odd about it. And yeah, sure, you want your marketing department to think as a team. You don't want them to think as competing individuals. And uh, mm -hmm. But look, you work in a university. I mean, so in our country, university departments tend to get ranked on various, I mean, how good are you as a teaching institution? How good are you at research? And we all work like mad as a team to you know, to get up the rankings, to get the department up the rankings. It's not, I mean, and you know, I'm really pleased when I, my department's up the rankings because because I'm part of that department. And uh, yeah, it's not hard to get people to think as a, a team. Well, when I when I do my game theory, I spend a, a week on this game called the OPEC game, where the each of the the student teams is assigned a country and they have to, you know, produce oil. And I've done this in two ways. Once I had seven teams representing seven countries. And then, you know, sometimes if I have a large enough student body, I'll split them into two separate worlds where there's seven teams over here representing seven countries. And then over here, I have seven teams representing the same seven countries and they all interact with each other. And I always get more cooperation when I have these two teams, because I remind them that there's another universe over there that they're competing against, you know? So it seems like competition seems to be a very important way of, of stimulating team cooperation, right? I, I thought of that. I mean, it's, it's clearly not necessary for team thinking. I mean, a, you know, a group of friends trying to figure out where to go for a night out. They're not in competition but but i can see that that it, it might well be sufficient i mean it might well be a good way of prompting team thinking so it comes naturally i mean it comes naturally to your even your economic students to yeah once they're being compared to to some <laughs> some other group that's when a cooperative impulse kicks in and you had some great you were talking about cycling and i had not yet i hadn't appreciated the the complexity of cycling and it made me gain an appreciation and i wanted to go out and, and study it more. But I, I wanted to, there's there's so much more in this book on sport we could talk about, but I just want to, before we wrap up, I want to talk about this book right here, Philosophical Devices. And I mean, this is really a wonderful book and it's incredibly concise and it, it covers a lot of territory. And when you start off the book, you said there's sort of, you know, the essential bits of philosophy and you contrasted them actually with a course on formal logic. Now, I remember taking a course on formal logic in my beginning of my education, and I always thought this is something that, you know, everybody should get at some level, maybe not at quite the level that I got, but everyone should be exposed to formal logic. Everyone should be exposed to what we might think of as rhetoric or critical thinking. How broad do you think the insights and the points in a book like this should be, how broadly should it be taught? I mean, should everybody who goes to university get exposed to some rudiments of philosophy like this? So that, that book was specifically motivated by thoughts of philosophy student readers. And the reason I wrote it is because British philosophy departments generally, they don't do, they don't do critical thinking courses. 
And that book is not, as as, as you know, critical thinking. It's, it's quite assy and technical. But they do do a formal logic course. And so they'll do the propositional calculus and the predicate calculus. Our students at King's would spend a quarter of their first year doing the logic course, and uh, similar in, in many other British universities. And and I thought this was unnecessary. I mean, it, it becomes a lot of kind of techniques you learn, and it's kind of for a lot of the students, in fact, for all the students, I mean, some of them can learn the techniques, some of them can't, but they, they, nobody ever told them what was the philosophical point of it very much. It wasn't like a critical thinking course. It was a kind of technical course. And I had thought for a long time, look, there's all this kind of techie stuff I know as a professional philosopher, because I've had to kind of figure it out. But I did have to figure it out, and nobody told me. And I wish somebody had just told me. I mean, there's all these kind of massy results that are really interesting. And if you're a kind of third year, fourth year master's philosopher, you're supposed to know about it. But there's no easy way of finding it out except doing these technical courses. And uh, I say in the preface to the book that I explained to one of my logic colleagues what I was going to do in the book. And he said, but you're just picking all the plums. I, he meant his students had to plow through eight weeks, 10 weeks, 15 weeks of boring exercises before they got to something that was kind of conceptually interesting. And I said, that's exactly what I want to do. I want to, I want to just pull out the conceptually interesting bits from all the boring exercises you make them go through. So the book does uh, set theory and infinities and Russell's paradox and then it does some stuff about a priori and a posteriori, and then it does probabilities and causes, and then it does some Gödel's theorem kind of stuff. And should everybody do something like that? I don't know. But it, but it was absolutely what the philosophy students needed, and uh, I'm not sure whether people have actually started changing the syllabus to... I mean, I, I know that there's some courses based on, on the book, but I think a, a lot of people tell their students, go, go and read this book. It's going to give you a whole lot of stuff that you aren't going to get easily elsewhere. What do you think? Do you think, do you think everybody should be, be taught Russell's paradox? And uh, Well, I, I think it's much better than, than taking three years to get to it. Yes, absolutely. Right? So I think it, it basically makes it more accessible so that people can take one or two philosophy courses and they don't have to do two or three years to get to the, some of the key concepts. No, it, it's kind of fun. I mean, in, so let me just tell you, in, in this book, I do Russell's Paradox and Set Theory, and then I do Orders of Infinity and Denumerable and Non-Denumerable Numbers, and then I do the Continuum Hypothesis, and I do the Generalized Continuum Hypothesis, and that's the first three chapters, and then there's three chapters like that on a priori and a posterior, and three chapters like that on correlations and probability and causation, and then there's three chapters on the nature of logic and syntax and semantics logical systems and then i sketch a proof of girdle's theorem and that's all in this book that is what i mean it's uh 150 pages uh 50,000 words it's not a fat book and i i think i do all that stuff pretty properly you know i i explain it all 
and I, but I don't go through all the technical details. I, as I say, I pick the plums. Well, now this new book on causation, I think causation is something that pretty much every social scientist needs to grapple with. Every scientist of every kind needs to, to grapple with it. But it seems like causation is something that we, we kind of assume that we know what it is. And, and we kind of, you know, push that problem under the rug and get on with the business of science. What would be the goal of, of your book on causation? Is there, is there a way that we can get everybody who's a, a scientist, particularly a social scientist, to you know, grapple with the key aspects of causation? For philosophers, I think there's a, a glaring challenge. I think that there's a bit of a scandal that philosophy is not addressing this challenge. I mean, I, I'm kind of in a hurry to write this book because I think it's such an obvious thing to be doing. I'm worried other people are going to be doing it too. Perhaps I shouldn't be uh, advertising on your podcast what the project is. But here's the setup. In philosophy, people theorize about causation. What's the nature of causation? And they have various philosophical theories involving counterfactuals and powers and laws and so on. And then over there in the statistics and econometrics and sociometric departments and uh, computer science departments, there are people developing techniques of causal inference, which basically take as input information about correlations, about probabilistic dependence, and then there's various techniques, and out the end comes reducing taxes, causes more employment, uh, smoking causes cancer, private schools don't really improve exam results, and so all kinds of causal conclusions. And the thing that has grabbed me is that the philosophical analyses give us no clue whatsoever to why these correlational techniques work. And what I want to do is try and develop a philosophical analysis of what causation is, the metaphysics of causation, the nature of causation, that explains why you can find out about causes by looking at these complicated uh, conditional unconditional correlations and nobody's really attacked this problem very hard i mean there are philosophers who are interested in the correlational techniques but they tend to be pretty techy and they don't really want to get involved in the the metaphysics of causation nature of causation then the pure philosophers who do the metaphysics of causation don't know about all statistical stuff i think it's a bit of a scandal it's a bit of a scandal that, that the philosophical theories of causation cannot explain why the causal inference techniques work but as I'm finding, it's quite a challenging project because the statistical stuff is pretty mathematical, pretty well worked out. Lots of lots of theorems you can prove. And I don't want this to be a book uh, more more theorems and statistics. I want this to be a book mainly aimed at the philosophical audience, saying, look, here's stuff that you really need to know about and you need to be able to explain. But so I'm, I'm saying in kind of philosophical terms, this is how it works, that's how it works. And then I think, hang on, am I really right about the mathematical underpinnings here? I better see if I can prove this. I better, in fact, uh, I realize a better strategy is to go to somebody else who knows and say, can I prove this or how would I prove this? So it's proving quite, quite challenging on the technical level, but it's fun. Well, I certainly look forward to it, and I think a lot of economists will be interested in reading that new book. So maybe we can get you back on the show for that one. David, thanks so much for joining me. This is the book we spent most of the time talking about. It's called Knowing the Score, 
what sports can teach us about philosophy and what philosophy can teach us about sports. Thank you, David. Thank you. Thank you. That was fun. Thank you for tuning in to the Unsiloed Podcast. If you enjoyed today's episode, please give us a five-star rating and review. To listen to other episodes, please visit our website at www.unsiloedpodcast.com.